As you made your way in this morning, I'm sure you noticed that construction is underway, and we are sorry for the inconvenience if you had uh, trouble parking or getting into the building. It will be short-lived, hopefully. Um, weather permitting, things should be complete by September. Uh, we have really five different things happening at the same time here in our building, including some new parking uh, that has not yet begun. Uh, classroom building for uh, some adult classes that we've never had and additional youth classes and a new entrance at Noah's Ark that's going to be a really nice entrance with a beautiful indoor playground for kids. It's, it's an exciting time for us and the uh, changes we think are going to really help us increase our disciple making ministries for all ages. So thank you for bearing with us patiently as these things are being done. This morning we continue our series that we've called Soul Shaping, and uh, we're focusing on spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices that help our souls to be shaped more fully into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says that regarding those who are Christians who have embraced Jesus' salvation, God has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So if you want a vision for your spiritual life, that is a biblical one, that you be increasingly conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And these practices we're studying, sometimes referred to as spiritual disciplines, while they in no way earn merit or add to our salvation, do contribute significantly to this process of being shaped into the likeness of Jesus. Think of God as the master potter and we as the clay, and God is increasingly shaping and conforming us. And these spiritual practices we've studied, whether silence or solitude or prayer or fasting, uh, many of those covered in the Soul Shaper book that we've been using in our small groups, contribute to that process of being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Now, something really important needs to be said about these practices. I've said it before, but I'd like to emphasize it again today. The fact that while they help our spiritual growth, these practices in no way earn or add to our salvation. It's important, critically important, I think, to understand two significant theological truths. The first is what is called by theologians, justification. Justification is an instantaneous act of God in which he calls a sinner just and made righteous because of Jesus' suffering on our behalf. As the book of Romans says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is based entirely on what Jesus, the Son of God, did when he was nailed to a cross and bore the weight of judgment for our sins there. It's by grace, the Bible says, through faith that we're saved, not through our spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. So we don't want to get confused about that. If we think that's how we earn or merit salvation, we'll never know when we've done enough. Christianity is not about doing enough. It's, been a, it's about what Jesus has done and receiving that by faith. Now, the picture on the screen, uh, when talking about this a few weeks ago, a friend in the church, one of our elders, Andy Spate, uh, sent me a little uh, sketch he drew that, that, that expresses this in visual form, and I thought it was helpful. 
The book, the, the uh, book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. And as you see in the little drawing there, our sin placed upon Jesus, Jesus' righteousness then placed upon us. That is justification. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a process that goes on throughout the life of a Christian. It's defined by theologian Wayne Grudem this way, that it's a progressive work of God. And man, now I use the word man to refer to mankind, women and men, boys and girls, a work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. What's he saying? Two things are important to note. Number one, this is a process that goes on throughout a Christian's life. And number two, it's a work of God and us human beings. God and man, men and women, boys and girls. In other words, it's a work in which God very much includes us. Our sanctification depends to a large degree on our willingness to seek God, to desire God, to want to walk with God, to want to be changed, to want to be made like Christ. And these spiritual practices we're studying, these spiritual disciplines, very much aid in this process of furthering our sanctification, our spiritual growth. You know, sanctification comes from uh, the word sanctify, like our word for saint or sanctuary. It just means being set apart, set apart to God. Now, with that in mind, we're looking at a new spiritual discipline, new spiritual practice today, and that of peacemaking. As I thought about what peacemaking means, I thought about Two families in history, they're not fictional, they're real, whose names are not synonymous with peacemaking. They're synonymous with feuding and with conflict. Have you ever heard these two names, Hatfield and McCoy? You ever heard them before? They're not fictional. There have been musicals made of them and shows made about them and things written. This is, this is history. This is historical. The mid to late uh, 1980s, in continuing for decades after, afterwards, a feud began between the Hatfields and McCoys, originally led by Devil Ants Hatfield and Randolph Olran McCoy. We're not sure exactly what started the conflict, but one of the, the primary things in the early years was a dispute over a hog. And, you know, hogs, their ears were marked a certain way, and the McCoys claimed it was there, the Hatfields claimed it was theirs. Well, it came before the Justice of the Peace in their time, who happened to be a Hatfield, and who ruled for the Hatfields in part on the testimony of a man named Bill Statton. And uh, soon after that, Bill Statton was killed by two McCoy brothers, and the feud began to escalate. Much fuel was added to the fire when uh, Rosanna McCoy agreed to marry Johnsey, the son of Devil Ants Hatfield. And that, of course, the families felt just could not be. The feud escalated, and between 1880 and 1991, the feud claimed the lives of more than a dozen members of the two families. Can you imagine having a family picture taken like that one right there <laughs> with all the guns drawn? Peaceful family, for sure. So more than a dozen members of these two families killed in that 11-year period. 
1979, more recent history, the two families actually united for a special taping of a show called Family Feud. They competed for cash, and an actual live pig was on the stage during the show. Memory of that uh, hog years before. Chicago Tribune and other newspapers reported a, a formal end to the feud in uh, June of 2003, when about 60 descendants of the two families came together to officially sign a proclamation of peace. And uh, Reverend uh, Bo McCoy had the, the crowd of 60 descendants uh, symbolically take their sins and cast them into the river nearby and said, we ask by God's grace and love that we be forever remembered as those that have bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of peace, of freedom in America. And the governors of both West Virginia and Kentucky made an official proclamation June 14, 2003, Hatfield and McCoy Reconciliation Day. Took a long time, but they reconciled. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. God calls us to peacemaking uh, primarily, I think, in two different ways. The first is in our own personal relationships with other people. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, is talking about a radical way of life for his followers. It's the first chapter of his great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as he talks about the way his followers are to live, it, it was challenging for sure for his hearers as it is for us. It's a radical new way of life. And he talks about reconciliation when he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and we can think of that as going to worship. You're coming to worship this morning. You're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. You see the significance of this? Jesus says, even if you're going to worship, this is so important that you should do this first. The implication is that leaving something unreconciled with a brother, with a fellow believer, could actually hinder our worship in some way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Later in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about the importance of our taking the initiative in a significant offense. If someone has really offended you, you see this in Matthew 18 and verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice he did not say, share this with your closest friends, share this with your small group, tell others about it, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Keep it between the two of you, that is. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, at this point in Matthew 18, Jesus goes on to give a process. If your uh, brother does not listen to you, process that includes the church actually becoming involved to try to help facilitate this reconciliation. I do think 
that Jesus has in mind here significant offenses, not a slight difference of opinion. And I'd like to, to read here something from the Soul Shaper book by Keith Drury, because the fact is, I think God calls us in large part to ignore many minor offenses in life, minor different ways of looking at things, minor different opinions or, or personalities. And uh, we face this all the time among friendships and marriages. Here's what Keith Drury writes. Friction occurs in interpersonal relationships when we spend time with people different from ourselves. The shy, quiet person is irritated by the outgoing, boisterous person. The orderly person thinks the disorganized person is a slob. Energetic hard drivers think easygoing people are lazy wimps. When interpersonal friction occurs, we tend to see one another's personality strength as a weakness. Nowhere is this seen so clearly as in marriage. Has anybody experienced that? besides my wife and me, differences cause friction. If we do not learn to deal with friction appropriately, it will slowly drive a wedge between relationships so that we eventually break fellowship with one another. We start to avoid each other, etc. There are many times in life we're simply called to uh, overlook and perhaps eventually even appreciate the differences in personality and close relationships. So there are times that we, we simply uh, ignore minor offenses, except that we have different personalities, weaknesses, strength. I think it's a mark of growth that we can enjoy fellowship, close fellowship with people who are different from us, have some different points of view, have different personalities. And then finally, recognize that there are times, and now we're talking about significant offenses again. There are times when you do all you can to reconcile with somebody and reconciliation does not occur, but you've done all you can. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul writes the way he does in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes you can do all you know to do in your attempts to reconcile with someone. But for some reason or another, perhaps the person has deep-seated psychological issues, hurts from the past. Maybe there are medical issues going on. You've done all you can, and reconciliation does not occur. Leave it with the Lord. If there's nothing more you can do. Leave it in his hands. Do be sure, however, <clears throat> you pray for that person, and you keep the love of God in your heart toward that person. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. So God calls us to be peacemakers in our personal relationships. Other times in life, God calls us to be peacemakers on behalf of others, peacemakers for others. The book of Galatians gives a beautiful prescription for this and how to approach these types of situations which often come up in the church. He writes, brothers, if anyone is called in a transgression, and please know when the word brothers is used by Jesus or, or Paul, consider this to, to mean all believers, women, men, boys and girls. If anyone is called in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love that Jesus gave. Love one another as he loves us. Uh, The royal law, as the Apostle James called it. Fulfill the law of love. For example, you see a friend going down a path that you know will harm her relationship with God. And you, as a friend, will just step in and lovingly confront her. Do it, as the Bible says, in a spirit of gentleness. Do it in a spirit of humility. Recognize that you yourself, but for the grace of God, could have been tempted, could have been tempted in the very same way. It's part of mature Christianity. You see a member maybe of your, your small group or your, your D group in our student ministry. You see, you see him going down a way that you know is going to be a snare and a harmful habit that's going to hurt that person's spiritual life and more. You go in humility. You go with gentleness. You go prayerfully and say, hey, I, I, I want to talk to you about this. There are times when church leaders try to follow this um, guidance, when they learn of a serious moral offense in the church. It's a, it's a difficult thing, but this is the way that we're to approach that in a spirit of gentleness and with humility and keeping watch on ourselves. Not only are church leaders called to do this, I think Jesus says every one of his followers, every believer is called to be a peacemaker. For he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, when you see that phrase, they shall be called sons of God, don't think it means do this so that you can be saved, become a child of God. The phrase sons of, uh, sons of something in Scripture often says, uh, means being like that something. For example, Barnabas was given the name Barnabas because he was a son of encouragement, Barnabas. Uh, uh, James and John, the disciples of Jesus, were called by Jesus sons of thunder because of their personalities. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, they should be called sons of God, he's saying, you'll be like God. God is the great reconciler. God is the one who, who took the initiative to bring us, we who were at enmity with him because of our sin, to himself through Jesus' death on the cross. God is the great reconciler. And when we're involved in the ministry of peacemaking, we're being like God. The Apostle Paul was a peacemaker. As you see in the next verses on the screen, he's writing the uh, Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, it's so interesting to me that these words would be important enough to be recorded forever in inspired Scripture. He says, I entreat you, Odeon, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Apparently, two women who were disagreeable with one another, he says, I beseech them to entreat in the Lord. That's important enough to, to add that to his letter. In Philemon, verses 17 to 21, you see him again trying to reconcile two people. He writes, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me, trying to reconcile two people. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. You see what he's doing? Trying to reconcile two people 
who now are both believers. It takes spiritual maturity to do this, and that's why I think Keith Drury writes in his very good book, The Soul Shaper, the most mature Christians, the most spiritually minded, will be the ones called for the delicate task of repairing broken relationships. God calls us to be peacemakers in our personal relationships with others, and sometimes to fulfill the role of peacemaking on behalf of others. I'd like to add one thing here to this whole idea of peacemaking. And that is that peacemaking does not mean compromising the truth of God's word. Often people, uh, for the sake of so-called unity, feel it necessary to lay aside some key doctrine or, or teaching of Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, yesterday, I think it was, um, Beth and I had someone ring the doorbell of our house Saturday morning. They were giving out literature, and that's happened many times at our house. I guess it's because of where we, we, we live, but um, I, I knew what these folks believed, and they don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's an essential doctrine. That's an essential teaching. That's not something you set aside and say, oh, we'll, we'll just agree we'll be one big happy spiritual family. There's some things you hold fast to. The deity of Christ is one of those. There were, there were people with whom Jesus did not reconcile, the scribes and Pharisees. He remained at odds with them, it seemed, throughout his ministry because of their wrong beliefs and their uh, unwillingness to accept his teaching and understanding and application and interpretation of Scripture. So peacemaking is not accepting wrong, significant doctrines. Listen to what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Wow, that doesn't sound like Jesus does it. That doesn't sound like what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapter 5. We must always understand Scripture in its context. The context of these words I just read in Matthew chapter 10 have to do with the sending out of his disciples and warning them about persecution. Persecution for his followers. Persecution for believers. We hear stories from all over the world through our involvement with missions person comes to faith in Jesus. Because of that, they are rejected by their family. They decide to follow Jesus Christ and be baptized. They are disowned by parents. Is Jesus calling us to, to go back and forget our faith in him just so we can be accepted by our family? No, he's calling us to place our faith in him first. Many people around the world are persecuted for their faith. We hold fast to the truth. Peacemaking is not compromising the truth of God's word. I love the motto uh, of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It was first held by the Moravian Church, and it goes back even earlier than that. It's something that we try to see lived out in our church, and it goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. 
and all things charity. But we don't compromise essentials for the sake of peacemaking or unity. We can love people and still believe that their doctrinal understandings about the gospel are wrong. We don't compromise those for the sake of unity or peacemaking. Now, to be a peacemaker, I think three things are necessary. The first is a personal relationship with the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the great reconciler himself, Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross in order to reconcile us to God, to give us peace with God. As the prophet Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, that is the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. Wow, what a peacemaker. How could a person do more in order to reconcile to people? Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, our faith in Jesus, what he's done, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peacemaking begins there. We first receive the peace that Jesus has provided, and then we can be ministers of his peace to other people. Secondly, peacemaking requires laying aside our jealousy and selfish ambition. Amanda read from this passage before in James, which reads, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sometimes I think it is helpful to ask when we're in the midst of a dispute, a conflict, be it minor or major, be it in our marriages, at church, or at work in our neighborhoods, to ask ourselves, to what degree, if any, is this conflict, does this conflict have something to do with my selfishness, with my jealousy? If we're bringing jealousy and self-centered ambition into a relationship, there is likely going to be conflict and far worse. Peacemaking requires laying aside our jealousy and selfish ambition. And then finally, Peacemaking requires following the example of the God, our, the God of peace. The Bible says that God is slow to anger. I love that truth about God. The book of James, every follower of Jesus, is called to be slow to anger. The apostle wrote, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, every one of us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Wow. How that might change things in just our marriages and our homes. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, a number of places in Scripture, the Bible tells us God is slow to anger. You, Lord, are a God gracious and merciful, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me ask you, as I've had to think about, consider, ask myself this week, are you slow to anger or quick to anger? When you have just cut your grass on Saturday afternoon and you are admiring how great it looks and your neighbor comes out to cut his grass and he's shooting 
all those grass clippings over on your yard where you just cut? Are you slow to anger or quick in anger? Or maybe you're driving home from work and the driver in front of you is going 35 in a 45 mile per hour zone and you get to a stoplight and as it turns yellow, that driver slowly makes it through and you're stuck at the red light. You're slow to anger, quick to anger. God is slow to anger. And I think that's the way Scripture's calling us to, to live. I was reading a um, great devotional book um, this week by Paul David Tripp, in which he said, we're often quick to anger and slow to love. But God is not like us. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Which one do you want to be? I want to recommend a resource to you on this topic of um, peacemaking. It's a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Really great book. It's been used in a number of churches to develop peacemaking ministries. Um, highly recommend their materials. Would you join me as we pray about this now? Father, we come in the name of Jesus the great reconciler, the one who bore the punishment, the chastisement of our peace, the one who scripture calls the Prince of Peace, the one Father who's given us peace with you. And we pray now for any in this room who may never have received the justifying, saving work of Jesus on the cross. For anyone here who's been trusting in his or her own good works to try to make it to heaven, Lord, would you show that person that Jesus paid it all? Would you lead that person now by opening their spiritual eyes to recognize the need, to acknowledge their sin, to turn to Jesus for his forgiveness and his salvation? Father, for each of us, we pray now that you would show us if there is an unreconciled relationship in our lives. If there is a relationship in which we need to humble ourselves and in a spirit of gentleness, ask someone to forgive us. Would you make us quick to hear, quick to listen, and slow to anger? And Father, if we know of a dispute between two people who need to be reconciled and you're calling us to be part of it. Would you empower us by the Holy Spirit to go in humility and gentleness to be peacemakers? For you said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Father, I ask that you would make us a peacemaking church. I ask for the work of the Holy Spirit here to make us a church where offenses are quickly confessed and forgiven, where wrongs are righted, where peacemaking is done, so that when people walk in here on a Sunday morning, they will sense the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, they will know you're my disciples because of the love you have for one another. May it be, Lord. May it be in your church here, we pray and in our lives individually. And we ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.